We're bringing this follow series to a close over the next two weeks. Today we're going to be talking about the topic of doubts. What does it mean to have doubts in your faith? Doubts about God? Doubts about yourself? Does that mean your faith's not real? How do you follow Jesus when you have doubts? That's what we want to talk about today. So that's no small challenge, but we're going to jump into that. And then next week, we're going to finish it up by asking, how do I change? Can can I change? Is what Paul writes in Romans that I do not have to sin the way I used to, that I I can live a new kind of life? Do I really believe that? And if so, how do I I live into that reality? Uh, And that will bring this follow series to a close, and we'll do Christmas Eve. We'll focus on the arrival of Jesus and the light that comes into darkness. So, this morning we want to talk about the topic of doubts. What does it mean when doubts creep into our faith? How do we process that? Uh, How do we handle that? And I would guess, wager to guess that rather than asking you to raise your hand if you've ever had doubts in your faith, that we would score 100% on that. That we all have current, or we all have had, we all currently have, and we will continue to have some level of doubts in our faith. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to move our conversation in three ways, kind of three classic points that uh, hopefully will frame this discussion for us, and I want to share them with you uh, in case you're uh, writing down or wanting to follow along in that way. The first is, what, what do we do about the reality of doubts? Like, let's talk about the reality of doubts in, in our lives, in our world. The second question we want to ask is, what causes doubts in our lives? And then the third question is, how do we process Doubts, right? How do we process doubts? I've used the word process on purpose because I'm going to suggest to you you're not going to be able to get rid of them. (laughs) That there's something inherent in faith that wrestles through doubt uh, in in some level. I do think we grow, and so doubt doesn't encompass us in, in some of the ways that it used to. So the reality of doubts, cause of doubts, and how do we process doubt? And what we want to use this morning sort of as our baseline is uh, a story in Luke chapter 7. So if you have a copy of the the scriptures, you can turn there. Uh, Luke chapter 7, verse 18. Uh, If you do not have one, feel free to just listen along. I'm going to read through this this passage here. Luke 7, 18 says, John's disciples, John is John the, the Baptist. So John the Baptist's disciples told him about all these things. So there's previous some, some uh, healings that are going on uh, that Jesus is doing. John's disciples tell him about all of these things. And calling two of them aside, John sent them to the Lord to ask, are you the one who is to come? Or should we expect someone else? When the men came to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist sent us to ask you, are you the one who is to come? Or should we expect someone else? And at that very time, Jesus cured many who had diseases, sicknesses, and evil spirits, and he gave sight to many who were blind. So he replied to the messengers, go back and report to John what you've seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. This is a quotation from Isaiah's prophecy. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me, Jesus said. After John's messengers left, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed swayed by the wind? 
If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No. Those who wear expensive clothes and indulge in luxury are in palaces. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes. I tell you, and more than a prophet, this is the one about whom it is written, I will send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, there is no one greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. So in this story, we have John the Baptist, a very prominent figure in the New Testament and in the life and ministry of Jesus, experiencing some level of doubt. I would suggest to you a serious amount of doubt. John the Baptist, who has framed his whole ministry about telling people that Jesus is the one who was promised, is now asking Jesus, are you the one who was promised? Do you see what's going on here? And so everything that John had given his whole life to, he's now beginning to question. So how do we deal with the reality of doubts? The first thing I want to suggest to you is that they are common. That they uh, exist in the lives of every human being. John the Baptist, it is not uh, by coincidence that Jesus calls him the greatest person born of a woman. He's saying, this is a person who you should look up to, who you should model your life around. This guy gets it. He understands and follows God. And he says that on the heels of John announcing this great level of doubt about who Jesus is. At some level, Jesus is making a proclamation that doubt is common across the board. This morning, the devil might be tempting you in this way. Your doubt means you're not in. Your doubt means you're no good. Your doubt means you don't love Jesus. Your doubt means you're not trying to follow God. When John's doubt showed up, Jesus said just the opposite. He said, there is no one greater born of woman than this man. And if he could say that about John, who was having a massive amount of doubt, then we can say that doubt is pretty common. In fact, you can find doubt in the lives of nearly every Bible character, and the ones who you can't find it in, it just wasn't recorded about them. And when I say every Bible character, I even mean Jesus. Jesus, very famously, in the garden the night before his death on the cross, is wrestling with doubt. He's asking God very sincerely, are you sure we have to do it this way? Isn't there a better plan? Couldn't we do it differently? He's processing an extreme level of anxiety and an extreme level of doubt. The famous 19th century preacher, Charles Spurgeon, maybe you've heard of him before, this is what he said. He says, whenever you meet someone who claims not to doubt, you should immediately doubt them, right? (laughs) Whenever you meet someone who claims not to doubt, you should immediately doubt them. He gets it. The Bible is filled with stories of doubt, and doubt in itself, we'll begin to unwrap here, is not a bad thing. It's how we position ourselves in the midst of our doubt. 
So Hebrews chapter one or Hebrews chapter eleven verse one begins this big section on faith, and this is how the writer to Hebrews defines faith. You might be familiar with this. He says, "Faith is confidence in the things we hope for." Faith is confidence in the things we hope for. Belief in the things that we cannot see. And so what I would suggest to you this morning is that inherent in this reality of faith that the Bible defines itself is some level of doubt. He does not say faith is confidence in what we know completely. It's confidence in what we hope for. Faith is not belief in something we are short of because God showed it to us completely, but it's things that we haven't been able to fully see or comprehend. And so right there in this definition of faith, which is meant to define this whole concept of following Jesus, is room for doubt. In fact, I would suggest to you this morning that without doubt, there can be no faith. At that point, it's simply certainty or truth. Without doubt, there can be no faith. Now, am I lessening what I believe about Jesus? Am I saying it might not be true? That's not what I'm saying. But we're talking about faith. And inherently invested in this idea of faith is this reality of doubt. A great Christian thinker, Oz Guinness, said it this way. He says, I believe in doubt. And then he followed it up by saying, which is another way of saying that I believe that faith can't exist without doubt. That they are together amalgamized, combined realities. Because there's some level of doubt, it calls upon us to have and exert some level of faith. This life of trusting God without fully being able to grasp everything about it. It's the reality of faith, or excuse me, the reality of doubt is that doubt is common, right, across the board, that in this life of faith we're called to, there's, there's room for doubt. In fact, faith comes because there's some level of doubt. And then the third thing I would suggest in this is how do we, how do we deal with God's reaction to our doubt? Well, we see it right in the story of John the Baptist, right? Jesus does not get angry with John. He does not yell and scream. He does not say, you were given one particular job, and now you're screwing it up. He does not say, remember how you were miraculously born? How your parents were really old, and they couldn't have any kids, and the angel Gabriel came, and, they, and you were conceived, and you were born, and this was a miraculous birth, and now you're doubting this? Remember when you baptized me? And the heavens opened up, and the dove came down, and the audible voice of God said, this is my son. Remember when that happened? How are you screwing this up now? Right? If I was Jesus, these would be my go-to arguments, because I'm lawyer Jesus, right? John, here are the five reasons why you've really screwed this up. Baptism, number one. right? Miraculous birth, number two. Plus, you're seeing all these, these miracles and all these things. How can you mess this up? Jesus doesn't go anywhere near that. Jesus is not a gospel. It's not that way, right? He says, you, go, you, go, you disciples, you go back to John and you remind him who I am and what I've done. I 
picture, if possible, Jesus desiring to put his arm around John and to assure him, yes, I am who you believe I am. And I'm doing what I was called to do. And you can be certain, John, that this is the right path. And in this, we see the heart of God towards a humanity who is prone to doubt, a pursuing God, a loving God, an enveloping God who wants to assure us and remind us and love us. In Matthew's Gospel, Matthew's account of Jesus, uh, when, when the people see the resurrected Jesus at the end, right? The disciples, the people who are all there, they see the resurrected Jesus. This is what Matthew records about that. This is so interesting to me. It says, they worshipped him. They worshipped God, they worshipped him. And it says, and many doubted. What? Have you ever think about that before? Like, there he is, resurrected, empty tomb, meeting you. They're worshiping, but it says many doubted. And of course, Thomas amongst those and others very famously. And then Jesus goes on to commission these same disciples who many of them doubted. And famously to Thomas, Jesus allows him to experience the things he needs to experience to begin to have assurance in his faith. What I take from Matthew's gospel is you can worship God sincerely and still be processing doubts. In fact, you can be commissioned by Jesus as his disciple to the world and still be processing doubts. And they saw the resurrected Jesus. How much more for us? This is the heart of God. Stop believing those angry cosmic cop stories about God who's ready to strike you dead because sometimes you wonder if it's true. Right? Sometimes you wonder if this whole thing is true. You, you believe it, and you're processing, you're moving, but you, sometimes you get caught up because circumstances, other things in life. And instead, start believing the God of the gospel who entered into the mess of humanity to rescue it. This is the God who says to our doubts, look at what I'm doing. Look at what's going on. I love you. See, Here's what I say, right? <laughs> the Holy Spirit convicts us. Satan gives us guilt trips. And so if you're processing doubts in the means of guilt, you can be certain that it's happening through the wrong lens. Reality of doubt. Common. There's some inherent reality that is going to exist in this notion of Faith and God responds to it in loving embrace, asking you to find more of Him as He pursues you, and believing that as you find more of Him, your doubts will begin to be less and less and less. So, second point then, where do doubts come from? What would lead John to have these significant doubts in his life? Well, there's two things that are pretty stark in uh, the story, the bigger narrative that's going on. The first is, why did John not come ask Jesus himself if he was who he was? Why did he send his disciples, you know? Because he was in prison, right? John was in prison. Now you imagine being John, right? Miraculous birth, saw the baptism, 
Whole ministry affirmed, and now you're in jail. And we begin to understand how sometimes personal circumstances cause doubt to arise in our lives. How sometimes pain and loss and suffering and disappointment give birth to doubts in our life. I can only imagine the thoughts of John as he sat in prison. He, he would be beheaded very shortly after this. He was going to die. Thinking, I gave my whole life to this. Remember the things that John did? I don't know if he had to, but he did it. It's like eating locusts. Remember this? And wild honey. He was, he was parading around the wilderness like a strange, <laughs> a strange hippie type dude. I don't know exactly what was going on, right? He lived this whole bizarre life. And then even when he began to get a following, he said, no, no, don't follow me, follow Jesus. And now he's in prison. You ever feel like that in your life? You ever say to yourself out loud or internally, man, I've given up a lot to follow Jesus and it seems like things don't always go my way. And doubt begins to pop into that reality. And I don't think God's angry at you for that doubt. In fact, I think he wants you to process that doubt rather than stuff it. And I think in processing it, he wants you to find the deeper realities of who he is and how much he loves you. For all of us, we can point to times, maybe right now, where doubt is a significant reality in our life because we are going through very painful and difficult circumstances. Things didn't turn out the way we wanted to. We're experiencing loss, relational strife. These things are magnified by the holiday season. We process doubt. The second reality, I think, that causes doubt, and I wouldn't suggest to you that these are the end-all, be-all, but these, I think, almost all doubts come from these two things, personal experience. The second one is when God jumps out of the box that we've created for him. Right? You know what I'm talking about when I say that? Because we, we read in the Bible that God created us in his image, but we process what the Bible says by saying we create God in our image, right? And so we've created this neat narrative of God that fits our existence and how we would like him to be because that would make most sense for us and be most helpful for us. And every once in a while, God just knocks down one of those walls to that box we've built for him, Right? Every once in a while, God doesn't come through for us on the plans that we've laid. Every once in a while, God goes being mysterious with us, right? Not fitting an assumption that we have. Stepping outside our neat systematic theologies. Science begins to ask questions of things we've believed for long periods of time. History begins to tell different narratives of things. See, this is no different than John the Baptist's experience. John the Baptist is processing who Jesus should be on the basis of his current circumstances and on the basis of the larger Jewish thought of who the Messiah would be. Yeah, it's great that he's doing all this healing, and that's signs that God's power is with him, but when are you going to throw, overthrow the Romans and set up the government? Right? This is what the Messiah was going to do. A whole new Davidic kingdom in that place. And it seems like Jesus is stalling at best, or maybe he's never even going to get to this stuff. And John's saying, hey, 
are you the one who was promised, or should I keep looking for someone else? Why? Because Jesus has jumped out of John's Messiah box, right? He keeps healing people. And John's like, well, that's great, man, but like, how about get rid of Pilate and the Romans? Let's, can we reestablish the temple worship in a pure way? Can we, can we have our land back? Can you be a Davidic king? Remember what David did? He was slaying giants. He was leading the troops all over. He was conquering the land. I'm grateful that blind people can see and mute people can talk and some demons are going away, but we've got bigger fish to fry, right? This is what John is thinking, I'm sure. It's what the whole Jewish world is thinking. That's why Jesus ends up on a cross because he jumps out of John's and Israel's Messiah box. God ever do that for you? Ever punch out a window so he can stick his head out and remind you, I don't live in here. I'm bigger than this. Did you ever just open the locked door and step out? And you're like, I locked you in there. You can't get out of there. Do you ever have this certain set of beliefs and then something happens and you're like, whoa. Or you read a chapter of the Bible you've never read before and you think, hmm, that might not fit. But the point being that God doesn't reside in our boxes. He is not made in our image. We're made in his image. There was a famous scientist named Copernicus. Ever heard of Copernicus? Copernicus had the audacity to suggest that the universe revolved around the sun rather than around the earth. This was a really dangerous thing for Copernicus to suggest. Why? Because people before him who were suggesting this had been burnt at the stake, killed. By who? The church. Why? Because if the earth didn't revol- if the world didn't revolve around the earth, then this whole thing about God might not be true because humanity is the center of God's existence, and so therefore everything must revolve around the earth. Now, hundreds of years later, we look at that and laugh, right? But this was a life or death issue in that day. Why? Because science was poking a hole in the God box of the Middle Ages or, or the later ages. And so, for us, we need to begin to understand that every once in a while, God jumps outside these boxes. And the doubts can spur up as he does. So, reality of doubt, cause of doubt. So then, what do we do about it? How do we process doubt in our lives? And I'll suggest to you two things, right? The first thing is, we need to choose the attitude we're going to have about doubt. You, choose the attitude. you get to choose the attitude you will have about doubt. I've told you you're going to have doubts. What you get to do is choose the attitude that you will have about doubt. And then the second thing, and it's a very simple solution to doubt, it will, it will take care of all doubt, but you will find out that it's very, very hard to do. Right? So we'll talk about that in a second. First thing, you need to choose your attitude about doubt. How will you pursue doubt? And I would suggest to you, you can pursue it from humility or from pride. It's a very different way, a very different thing to say to God, how dare you, than it is to say to God, how could you? Do you see it? I never realized this before, but as I was preparing for this, I read um, a little thing that Tim Keller had written up about Mary. And he, he was writing about the doubts that Mary had about this call on her life 
from God, as recorded in Luke chapter 1. She's 13 years old, somewhere around that. She's going to have a baby. And Gabriel's telling her, this baby is going to be the Messiah of the world. Uh, You're going to be, you know, uh, conceiving a, a child as a virgin. And rightly so, Mary's got significant doubts. How can this be? How on earth can any of this happen? Tim Keller, I think pretty insightfully, shows that she processes her doubts from a position of humility. And in so doing, begins to find answers. Now, I'm certain, just as much as the other disciples were blown away by what was happening on the cross, in the same way Mary's perception of who Jesus was was being shattered there too. But Mary says to the angel, how can this be? How can this happen? How can I have a child? I've never been with a man, and how can it, how can it be that he's going to be the savior of the world? And Gabriel, very famously, says, with God, nothing is impossible. And Keller goes on to say that that verse has been... <clears throat> a rock for him at difficult seasons of his life. And if Mary had not been humble and honest with her doubt, perhaps Gabriel never would have given her that answer that became an anchor to her faith throughout. See, the doubt isn't the problem for us. The problem we sometimes get into is how we pursue or deal or engage our doubt. When we begin to engage our doubt in a prideful, self-centered, I'm the center of the world kind of way is when doubt begins to take us in a wrong direction. Charles Spurgeon also said, the experience of doubt is like having a raised foot ready to either take a step towards God or away from God. And I would suggest to you, humble doubt moves us towards God And prideful doubt moves us away from God. Because prideful doubt says to God, this whole thing's about me. You better answer up. And humble doubt says, I get it. You're God and I'm not. I don't understand what you are doing. Help me. And humble doubt is open to a divine answer. Humble doubt is open to a view that would differentiate from what we're experiencing in the moment. I would suggest to you, John is experiencing doubt and processing it in a humble way. Why? Because he honestly goes to Jesus and says, hey, here's what I thought about you. Are you the one, or should I look somewhere else? It is not a self-centered question. It is not, hey, I gave my whole life up for you. Start acting how I want you to act. He says, hey, none of this makes sense. Why am I in prison? Why aren't you overthrowing the Romans? Are you really the one? Help me understand. And Jesus in a loving way, says, hey, look at what I'm doing. And to John, who is a prophet, he relates it right back to Isaiah the prophet to remind John that this, this in fact, is what God said the Messiah would be. 
John gets an answer because he pursues his doubt humbly. Here's the deal, church. We probably have been taught to pursue doubt in one of two ways. And I would suggest to you both of these two ways are very unhealthy. Right? First way is stuff it as deep as you can and hope it never comes back. Right? Can, can we just answer out loud, does that work? It doesn't work, right? It's a terrible plan. And yet I continue to use it sometimes, right? It's a terrible plan. They're just stuff. You can't be spiritual in doubt, so stuff it, stuff it, stuff it, stuff it, and maybe it'll go away. No. God never asked that of us. In fact, he's asking us to humbly and honestly enter into our doubt because when we do that, we actually humbly and honestly enter into him. And he begins to speak to us and to open our eyes. I'm not suggesting to you immediately or in massive ways so that it's gone like that. But he begins to show up and demonstrate to you. That's the first way sometimes we enter into doubt, I think, in a wrong way. The second way sometimes we enter into doubt in a wrong way is the prideful way that I'm talking about. We say, well, then that's it. I'm done with you, God. You didn't fit my box. You didn't stay in my, inside my systematic theology. You didn't show up for me when I expected you to. Things aren't going my way, then I'm done, right? And, and we felt like these are our two choices with doubt. We either check out or we stuff it. And I've seen people do both. I've seen pastors check out when things in ministry got hard. What does that say? It doesn't tell me anything about God. It talks to me about how they were pursuing doubt. I've seen people who are faithful followers of Jesus when a, just a painful reality comes into their life, check out. And equally so, I've seen other people stuff it. Pastors, missionaries, faithful longtime followers of Jesus just stuff it. And when you stuff it, you do not find more of God. You find more of your doubts. I read one writer who said, we need to learn how to doubt our doubts, not just doubt our faith. When we doubt our doubts, we've placed the burden on God, not the centrality of ourselves. Yeah, that makes sense to me. This morning, I want to call on you. might sound weird to humbly and honestly admit and engage your doubts. As your pastor, if you were to come up to me and share your doubts with me, I promise you that I will not look down on you, that I will not think less of you, but I will put my arm around you, and I will say, I get it. I've got a lot of questions too. And as much as I can, I'll do this last thing for you. This is the answer to doubt, right? I, I have the antidote to doubt. I know it. And yet I continue to doubt. So what I'm about to tell you is infinitely simple and easy. You can get rid of all your doubts. But it is incredibly difficult. <laughs> so you likely will not get rid of all your doubts, right? And the answer is fix your eyes on Jesus. Why is the New Testament so obsessed with saying things to us like fix your eyes on Jesus? 
because they're processing all kinds of doubt. Personal circumstances, persecution, death, pain. Jesus, you were the Messiah. Why isn't this church thing going, going bananas? Why are we getting killed? Why is Nero using us as torches in his garden? Right? Doubts. The New Testament writers, to those people experiencing those doubts, keep saying things like, fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of your faith. He's the one that will keep doubt from overcoming faith. He's the perfecter of your faith. Friends, even Paul is saying to his people, Paul, who gets the gospel better than anyone else, right? Other than Jesus, who gets it better than anyone else, he's saying things like, I pray that I'll stick with this to the end. We should take notice when Paul says stuff like that. Jesus is the author and perfecter of our faith, not us, not your pastor, right? not your favorite Christian author, not your daily devotion book. It's Jesus. And the minute you build your faith on anything other than Jesus is the minute you become infinitely susceptible to all kinds of doubts. Well, what do you build your faith on? Your assumptions about who God is, right? Your systematic theology. You build your faith on someone else's faith. What happens when their faith slips? You build your faith on your church. Guess what? Church is filled with broken people. They mess up. Churches mess up. Hopefully never this church, but churches, we we mess up, right? We see it all the time. People's faith falls because of... uh, People begin to doubt their faith and they step away from faith because a a famous Jesus follower screws up royally. If you are looking to anything other than Jesus, you are infinitely susceptible to not only chronic, but fatal doubts. And this is why when John's disciples come to him, Jesus doesn't say, of course I am, just believe it. He says, look at me. Look what I'm doing right now. Do you see it? He's not saying, hey, remember back when. He's saying, look right now at what's happening. Look at me. And when your eyes are fixed on me, then the faith part of the faith and doubt equation is the ruling reality. Do you see it? Do you grasp it? That's why we get the famous story of Peter who seeing Jesus on the water wants to come to him, right? And Jesus says, go ahead, get out of the boat, come, you come. And Peter gets out of the boat and he comes and then it says what? He looks down at the water and he begins to sink. What is the imagery that's going on? If our eyes are fixed on Jesus, we walk on water. When our eyes get fixed and our foundation becomes the water that I'm walking on, we sink. The issue in your faith is not defeating all of your doubts. It is fixing your eyes on Jesus. The answer to your faith is not having the greatest apologetic argument for anything because new stuff is going to show up. It's going to get you. God's going to evacuate even that box that you've made for him. 
The Scriptures remind us that the, the thoughts and ways of God are beyond human comprehension. You must fix your eyes on Jesus. And friends, I would suggest to you not even what Jesus did for John, but what Jesus has done for you. See, this Christmas, we don't celebrate that 2,000 years ago, Jesus came into the world for John the Baptist. Or even for Mary. We don't celebrate that he came for shepherds or wise men. We don't celebrate that he came for the 12 disciples. You and I, we celebrate because he came for us. That he looked on our state of affairs. That he understands our doubt and all the things we're moving on. And he moves into our existence. And from the cross, says not to a Roman centurion, but to us, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And he demands us, don't lose sight of the gospel. Because when you do, the doubts of the world might overcome you. When we figure out this whole, how did God create the world, might there be some surprises that we find? Probably. Does that change what Jesus did? Not in the least. Though we're experiencing evil and violence in our world, might God have a reason? Possibly. Does that change what Jesus has done for us? Not in the least. Could we find out that the book of Ephesians was altered in the year 87 AD and therefore wasn't Paul's exact original thing? I guess it's possible. Does that change what Jesus has done for us? No. So much of our doubt is consumed by our personal experience and the box we've built for God. And God says, the cross shatters it all. And the resurrection demands that it's true. So go ahead and be honest about your doubts. Is the Bible hard for you to embrace? Are you struggling with the fact that you've experienced a significant diagnosis and how could God allow that to happen? Don't stuff it. And and don't take the easy way out and walk away. You find Christian community. You find the people who will put their arms around you and say, you know what? I don't get it either. Let's keep calling upon God, saying, God, how? Why? Help us. And believe that in his loving embrace, we will continue to find the reason for our existence. Hope is a place for doubt. This is a safe community for doubt. I had a professor at Bible college who said, Bible college is the place for heresy, right? And you might think, whoa, that's a terrible statement. Aren't we supposed to be training pastors? But what he was saying was, this is a safe place to express all of your things and in your honest journey and process to find the truth about who God is. And so I say the same thing about Hope Alliance. You be you. You be honest about what's going on in your life. And I believe that God is big enough to respond to your humble and your honest doubts. In the same way that he said to Mary, 
with God, nothing is impossible. And as you fix your eyes on Jesus, somehow you will walk on top of the water of new scientific discoveries. And you will walk on top of the water of familial loss and broken relationships. And you will walk on top of the water of struggles with how the Bible was was composed. You will walk on top of the water of feeling like God didn't show up how you wanted him to. Because there is no denying that Jesus is who he said he was and has done what he said he did. And the resurrection has announced it's true. And upon the resurrection, it says his followers, they worshipped him. That's what we're here to do this morning, right? And it said, and many doubted. And he sent them. We are in that number. Can I pray with you?